Well, Bob Hope is gone. I'm not surprised. It's what I've always said about this show. There's no hope. Would you repeat that? Of course not. I'm sorry I said it in the first place. I should hope so. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson, who's a little under the weather, so his voice has sounded even sexier than usual. Nick, how you doing tonight? Uh, sensibly sounding more like a frog, but that's probably on theme, but... A sexy frog. Tonight's theme for these episodes is, uh, can't win them all. <laughs> can't win them all, Nick. Actually, well, I, I think it's probably better... If I if I go into it as we as we take it beat by beat. Well, I just wanted to let people know, like, I just got done editing and releasing our Madeline Kahn, George Burns episode. I love Madeline Kahn. Like this week. Good feedback on the Madeline Kahn episode because everyone shockingly loves Madeline Kahn. What are the odds? But I just finished editing it like a few days before I put it out. And those episodes are so damn good. And it was that that was such a pleasure, like back to back experience watching the Madeline Kahn and George Burns episodes. They were both we I mean, you should you should listen to the episode. We're gushing the whole time. That sounds about right. right? Yeah. We're gushing over her. We're gushing even over George Burns. Mm-hmm. Right. It was a very good episode. This is the opposite where both of them like I think they're both misfires. I think one is merely mediocre. Well, I, I just want to warn people before we start. I'm not going to be kind on that point, one of the things I do think is very important, because that's also something that's going to come up when I go into our first guest's uh, biography, there's there's not really any such thing as purity. And we have to understand these things in terms of the emergent factors that would have made them more or less accepted at the time. That doesn't make them okay now. That doesn't mean that there weren't faux pas committed. It just means in this and in most cases where you would want to affect positive change or highlight things that could be a more productive direction for, that things could have gone in, part of that is being being able to meet the thing where it is and see what the emergent variables are. That's, again, that doesn't make anything okay. It's just finding the effective way forward. You're absolutely correct. But however, I'm going to say that I think 222 was out of line even in 1978. Probably was, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to it, but I was not pleased with it. It was not an enjoyable experience. This is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets, in case you didn't know that. Before we get started, I'd like you to check us out on social media, please. Uh, at Lunatic Daring, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LunaticDaring.com, where you find our latest episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently going through the... Nope, that's not true. We are currently finishing up Muppet Show Season 2, <laughs> two episodes episodes at a time next week we're, we're done with the season yeah and then we've got our wrap-up right and then we've got our wrap-up and, and then we're off for a few weeks mm-hmm. and by the way we'll talk about the wrap-up i'll get you a list of lists to make sounds good you can't put madeline Kahn for every slot but what if i want to I, I i want to as well so yeah today we have a couple episodes that you know you may be able to tell were fairly disappointing Do you know what what wasn't disappointing is i saw fast and the furious 9 today i'm not gonna go off on a giant tangent about fast and the furious but let me just say thank god movie theaters are back <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's go ahead and get things started. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Bob Hope. All right, Nick. So Bob Hope is another one of those guys that I don't remember not knowing who he is. He was an omnipresent part of American culture for, I would say, a majority of the 20th century. I, I would argue that he was born at the top of it. 
Yeah, and you know, for for all of my life, Bob Hope was a thing that was there. I found his presence, and I get the joke of this episode, but I still found his presence to be so... Why don't you go ahead and tell us about Bob Hope before I talk about the fact that I feel like I didn't even... He wasn't even in in the episode. (laughs) Uh, Bob Hope was born Leslie Towns Hope on May 29th, 1903 in London, England to William Hope, who was a stonemason, and Avis Hope, the Towns, uh, who was a Welsh light opera singer. He was born the fifth out of seven sons. The family would emigrate to the United States through Ellis Island in 1908. Bob would have been about five then, which might explain why he doesn't really... I don't think he's got anything approaching any sort of a British accent. Uh, no. But he started busking for change, doing uh, song, dance, and comedy around the time he was 12. He would win a prize in a talent show for an impression of Charlie Chaplin in 1915. He also had a brief career as a boxer in 1919, fighting under the name Packy East. Wait, 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 wait a minute. So you, when you say boxer, you mean he was holding his fists up in that old timey way, right? Ah, uh, 1919. Oh yeah, he, he's holding his fists up like right out in front of him. Was he doing like the Queensberry style at that point? That's how I'm imagining it in my head. It's pretty easy to imagine. I don't know where you're at. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the only way him, him, him in his like, you know, Apollo Creed trunks doesn't do anything for me, but him with his arms out kind of all spindly and yeah. Well, he, he would later do certain boxing things for charity, but like not in any real way. It was probably pre-rehearsed, uh, but he had three wins and one loss when he was fighting from there. He would work as a butcher's assistant and a lineman in his teens and early twenties. He's got a lot of blue collar jobs and it, it doesn't really seem like there's a time where Bob's not working, which will play into his later career. In 1921, while assisting his brother uh, clearing trees for a power company, there was an accident which resulted in his face getting crushed and forcing him to undergo reconstructive surgery, which I didn't realize was a thing in 1921. For some reason, I just imagine that starts in like the 60s. No, it was a thing. It wasn't necessarily high tech. Did you yeah. say he got his face crushed? I don't, I'm not sure if the tree fell on him or if he was on top of the tree and he hit the ground, but yeah, his face okay. was crushed. Because face, like, you don't hear that, you don't hear that injury very often. He got his face crushed. Just a flesh wound. A uh, silent film star, Fatty Arbuckle, saw him performing and found him, helped him find a place with a traveling troupe called Hurley's Jolly Follies. Uh, within that same year, he formed an act called Dance Median with George Byrne and the Hilton Sisters, who were conjoined twins who performed a tap dancing routine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, entertainment. Well, it's vaudeville, but uh, Hope and Byrne would also perform as Siamese twins, and they did sing and dance in blackface until Hope was told that he would be better doing it as an, on his own. And again, like that's tying into the theme of the second episode, the values distance of the age would factor in there, but also that doesn't mean that black kids watching that back when didn't realize that people weren't laughing with them. Right. He would informally change his name to Bob in 1929. He began performing on radio in 1934. So uh, this season of A Feat of Lunatic Daring has featured me getting a number of people with very lengthy resumes when it comes to their performances. Yeah, I dodged a couple bullets this year. It's it's fine. I got to do the one on Madeline Kahn. That makes it all worth it. Wait till you hear my Teresa Brewer bio. It's going to take about 35 seconds. <laughs> I have very salty feelings, but that might be because of what I'm drinking. <laughs> I will look at next year and, and it's, we'll, we'll plan it out. It's fine. The only fine. one that I call is Mark Camel. I get Mark Camel. That's that's fair. That's season four, though. But sorry, what, the reason I bring that up is Bob's got a lot of credits to his name on radio, yeah. stage, yeah. 
screen, charity work, you name it. So I'm going to be glossing over a lot of that because we don't have time. Gloss away. Yeah, he made some movies with Bing Crosby and he did the USO, the end. I'll, I'll get to those in a second. But like he began performing in radio in 1934. His first regular series for NBC radio was the Woodbury Soap Hour in 1937, which he got on a, a 26-week contract. That same year, he had a short-lived first marriage to his vaudeville partner, Grace Louise Troxel. They were married in Jan- on January 25th, 1933, and they were divorced in November of the following year. Bob's, uh, well, well, we'll get into some of his romantic foibles in just a minute. In 1934, he also signed a contract with Educational Pictures of New York for six short films. Uh, he would soon sign with Warner Brothers to work on film, and he would be working on films during the day and performing in Broadway shows in the evenings. So one of the things about the timeline here is Bob's working on a lot of things at the same time, so I'm going to be jumping back and forth. In 1938, he would move to Hollywood when Paramount signed him for the big broadcast of 1938, where his trademark song, Thanks for the Memory, uh, would be introduced. Many's the time that we feasted. And many's the time that we fasted. Oh, well, it was swell while it lasted. We did have fun and no harm done. So thanks for the memory of crap games on the floor. Nights in Singapore. You might have been a headache, but you never were a bore. I thank you so much. And that was a song that would be modified for different situations and settings. He would sing it on USO tours. He would always sort of tweak it a little bit. Thanks from America to all our men in blue, our boys in khaki too, our tough Marines, our Coast Guard, our Army nurses true. We thank you so much. And thanks to our brave allies, the gallant Russian bear, the British everywhere, the free French and the Chinese and you Latins way down there. We thank you so much. While aboard the RMS Queen Mary in 1939, he, he volunteered to perform a special show for the passengers as well. He would perform, perform the song there as well. He would perform his first USO show on May 6th, 1941, at Marchfield in California, and he would be traveling to entertain troops for the rest of World War II, and the Korean War, and Vietnam, and the third phase of the Lebanon Civil War, and the Iran-Iraq War, and the Persian Gulf in the early 90s. He headlined 57 times. He did star in a series of Road to, or they're just called Road Movies, but they're usually the Road to Hong Kong, or the Road to Bali, or something to that effect. But he starred in a number of Road Movies with Morocco. Uh, with Bing Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour between 1940 and 1962. There were seven in total. Off on the road to Morocco Hang on till the end of the line I hear this country's where they do the dance of the seven bells we tell you more, but we would have the censor on our tails. We certainly do get around. Like Webster's Dictionary, we're Morocco-bound. Hope and Crosby would work together outside of that context as well a good number of times, up until he passed in 1977. They would deal with things like oil leases or other small business ventures on top of their show business performances. He's also hosted the Academy Awards 19 times between 1939 and 1977. So I don't like yep. 
The amount of time that he put into so many different things, he also dabbled in racing sports cars and was randomly on an episode of the Golden Girls. And so there's a long alleged marriage to Dolores Reed, um, which different biographies on Bob Hope have found kind of confusing. Some of the marriage reports would imply that he was married to her while still being married to Grace Troxell. There's Even if that had been the case, he had a lot of extramarital affairs with a lot of starlets, including a number of beauty pageant winners. Rosemary Franklin was a beauty queen, and she was Miss World for 1961, and she had a 30-year affair with Hope, even though he was nominally married to another woman. I don't know how he found time for that on top of all the other stuff he was doing. (laughs) It sounds exhausting. Yeah, it does sound exhausting. Around the time Bob turned 75, he started concentrating more on television specials, television specials and USO USO tours. He would make cameos on occasion in different films as well. And in 1998, there was an actual incident where an obituary was published by the Associated Press, which resulted in his death being announced on the US or on the floor of the US House of Representatives. He, he wasn't dead. They just, for whatever reason, the story got out. Um, and he was kind of frail in his <laughs> right. last few years. That's got to be terrifying, just waking up one morning and reading your obituary in the paper. I don't know. I think it'd be kind of cool. I've always wanted to do that uh, Tom Sawyer thing. Oh, you just attend your own funeral? Yeah. Don't you want to, wouldn't you want to attend your own funeral? I don't know. Come like, on. Oh, I think it would be awesome. I feel like it goes one of two ways. Either like no one shows up and I'm like, oh, cool, this sucks. Or people are there and upset and people I care about are upset because of something that I did or something that happened to me. It, it, it sounds like a lose-lose. I want to hear the jokes. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> to be fair, I, I do want to know what stories would be told because there are a few. Yes. On the morning of July 27th, 2003, Bob Hope died of pneumonia at age 100 at his home in Toluca Lake, California. Our second centenarian. Mm-hmm. Because George Burns died at 100. Yeah. Um, The thing is, I don't know much about the man. Like, I've reported different events from his life. It's equally likely that he was a joy to work with or a nightmare behind the scenes, depending, because there was so much that he was doing that it had to be spot on. He was a massive influence on a lot of performers. And he was a very, what I think you said at the top of the biography, he was just a presence. You just knew, like, yeah. it's Bob Hope. Everyone knows who Bob Hope is. You don't know why, you know. Like, I was born in the late 80s, and I didn't know why I knew who Bob Hope was. But I was like, oh, yeah, Bob Hope. I've heard that name. So what would you call him? Just an entertainer? I feel like that's the safest bet. I Just call him an entertainer. Because the thing is, yeah. with this era, one of the things I've noticed with a lot of those that I would say were born before... 1934, before 1935, they went through a number of different mediums from stage and vaudeville to radio to film. And to say that they are just one thing, like they all had to be multi-talented. And even with the the Muppet crew, they're pretty good musicians. They can sing, but they're primarily puppeteers, right? So maybe just comedian. I would even, I would still still go with uh, entertainer over comedian though. I think I've only seen Jim act in one movie as a cameo and it caught me off guard and timepiece, but yeah. Oh yeah. Timepiece too. That's, that's true. A little different, but the Muppet show episode two twenty one, featuring guest star, Bob hope produced between November 22nd and November 24th, 1977. It would premiere in the UK on February 19th, 1978. And in the United States on February 13th, 1978, it was directed by Peter Harris written by those same four. Of course. Fools have been written the entire season. 
Bob Hope. Fifteen seconds to curtain, Mr. Hope. Oh, thank you, Scooter. You know, Bob, I think you're an incredibly talented human being. I mean, you're a comic genius. Oh, thank you, Gonzo. I love doing this show. In our cold open, Gonzo, well, I mean, Scooter, of course, comes in to give him his usual countdown, but Gonzo tells Bob Hope that he's a comic genius, but where many weirdos like Gonzo might be ashamed of their nose, he's very proud of his nose, and... If your nose weren't so small, you'd probably be a big star like me. I hate doing this show. I think this is the uh, the longest we see Bob on screen until probably the end of the episode. He is, I will say the nose joke, like his profile was very famous. Mm-hmm. You know, the Alfred Hitchcock profile? The, uh, the silhouette? Hope had something similar. He had a silhouette sketch that was like his symbol. Mm-hmm. And it very prominently featured the very angular nose and the big chin. Mm-hmm. The pointy chin. So his his silhouette was a very was one of his trademarks. You could show me a sketch of his silhouette, and I would know exactly who it is. I mean, it's a very distinctive nose, which I think is why they match him up with Gonzo here, of course, right? From there, we go to the Muppet Show theme, where uh, Crazy Harry blows up Gonzo at the end of it, which is repeated from episode two eighteen. Be interesting at the end of the season to see how many of these they actually shot. Yeah. I, so I will say that I do love, like there, it's a sparse thing, but I love the backstage story for this just because it gives us more animal. Oh yeah. No, I, this, this episode's fine. It's fine. It's not great. It's fine. And it, it does have a funny, it does have an entire backstory for animal based on a one line from Kermit. Hey, we are lucky because do you know who our guest star is? Ho, 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 Our guest star is Bob Hope. Will you stop bugging me? Go do something to calm down. Go find a hobby or something. Ah, hobby! 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 Yeah, animals, pure id. So it, it would be nice for him to find a hobby, depending on what that hobby is. Um, and from there, we go into... So, Chad, you, you co-host a, uh, a Star Wars podcast, right? Execute Chapter 66, available wherever podcasts are sold. Or not sold. Or, 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 or streamed. I was very critical of a lot of aspects of the new trilogy. I still have to see The Rise of Skywalker. I'm critical of them, too. And The Last Jedi gave me the darkest Star Wars clip since the Ewok adventure, or whatever the second one of the Ewok adventures was. <laughs> You're talking about the Porg? Yeah. Chewie sitting there getting ready to eat the Porg and making eye contact and having a weird crisis of conscience. And I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting it. And it made me laugh for a mm-hmm. solid, like, five minutes. That's because it's very funny. Oh, yes. And like unexpectedly dark. I still wouldn't have brought them onto the Falcon. That's a separate conversation. But the reason I bring that up is they get everywhere. Our next number called or featuring a song called Pig Calypso also also features a pretty dark joke. Um, And the thing is, it does. I wasn't sure where this one was going to go. Mm -hmm. Like I had no idea what you were getting at until right now. Now I figured it out. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I wasn't sure if this was going to be something that would be like, okay, this might necessitate a content warning. Things weren't necessarily culturally sensitive. No warning on either one of these. Good to know. And this song was written for The Muppet Show by one Derek T. Scott. Yeah, he was just one of the musical associates they had in the show. You know, probably, he could have been just been one of the musicians or whatever. There was no song out there called Pig Calypso. <laughs> Yet. Yet. Having fun, dancing, 
I wasn't sure where this one was going, and I was watching and I was waiting for it to turn into like one of those old banana commercials or something. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a callback to the to the um, Carmen Miranda mm-hmm. fruit on the head look, a little bit of the Kachita banana thing. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. And the thing is, throughout the season, it's been downplayed a little bit, but Kermit's perpetually just this side of being very tired of Miss Piggy. I think he's gone over the other side, <laughs> but yeah. Oh, he, he, he's he's dipped a toe over once or twice, but the thing is, yeah. I have a. I have a sinking suspicion that they just tried to guilt Kermit into being in this bit. And he's like, if I'm in there, you're stuck with me. I'm not stuck with you. So Piggy's singing this song called Pig Calypso, which is like a, a Calypso number. It's, I don't know where she's supposed to be. Somewhere in the Caribbean, I'm guessing. Someplace tropical? Yeah, Calypso is from like Trinidad, Tobago. Mm. Afro-Caribbean. And at first, it's just the pig Calypso, but then it gets personal because she starts singing about Kermit. At first, she starts singing about, <laughs> I, my favorite line was, uh, tell us of your gay romance, which meant something very different in 1978. Mm-hmm. But it didn't, though. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. In 1978, it just depends on where you say that. And mm-hmm. um, But then she s- makes it personal and starts singing about how she loves Kermit. And yeah, and then Kermit gets dragged in the song and he, uh, what was the line? Was it the only time I get close to pork is with a, a fork and bib? Something to that effect. The pig will never get her way. Bib and napkin, knife and fork is the only way that I'll touch pork. Pretty cold, Kermit. I I think Kermit doesn't get piggy away from him by being subtle, though. No, he's just flat out like, go away. (laughs) Please. Please. He's like, I'm not playing hard to get. I've gone full method. Go away. I think he likes Piggy as like a person. I, I don't know. It's it's very. I think he sees her as a valuable asset on the show, but he's. It's still one of those things where he's constantly like, "Yeah, what night is the night that she's sitting in the back of my car with a garrote because I've turned her away too many times?" And listen, I am a Piggy apologist, but you flip the genders, and she's been fired a long time ago. Yeah, probably even in the seventies. It is a funny punchline, though. <laughs> Not only that, but she physically assaults him for turning her down. I disagree. She physically assaults him for the knife and fork line. Oh, no, no. Tonight, yes, but generally speaking. Yeah, I. she usually doesn't assault him for turning her down. She usually assaults him when he makes fun of her affections or goes too far to hurt her uh, or to make a joke at her expense, like a pork joke or something. Then I think is when she gets mad or, or when they are having a laugh at her expense, you know? Hmm. In this, it's because of the the end of the song, which didn't make me not laugh at it. <laughs> like, it's a very fun. It's funny because you don't expect Kermit in the number, right? It's mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's not a Kermit number. It's ve- it feels like a very piggy number. We just had um, something Lagusta, right, before, Mucha mm-hmm. Lagusta or whatever, a couple episodes ago where she was singing. Like, so like this really does feel like a piggy number. So then to have Kermit kind of pop in the middle of it and be like, uh-uh. <laughs> Is uh, I thought very funny. 
We go backstage. Fozzie has discovered that Bob Hope isn't in his dressing room, uh, which is where we sort of get into, I would call it the meat of the episode, but realistically, there's there's no meat. There's barely potatoes. Yeah. The recurring joke is that Bob is a very busy man, which, judging it by his bio, he is a very busy man. No, that is true. He was known as one of the hardest working, if not the hardest working man in show business. But it's not, um, and maybe like backstage, they could only get Bob for so much time to record as it was. And so they had to minimize it. Kermit's aware of it. He explains that Bob's across town doing a benefit. He is not there. Uh, yeah, I, I know. He's across town doing another show. He, he hasn't even done this show. Well, he promised he'd be back. He's doing a benefit. He's doing a disappearing act. Uh, uh, look, Fuzzy, Bob Hope is the busiest man in show business. He's a humanitarian. He does benefits all the time. He'll be back. Oh. And that he'd be back in time for to do something on the show. This then pivots to the better aspect of the backstage story, which is <laughs> Animal and his new hobbies. There was a movie. I can't remember what movie it was that I saw, but Wrestling Alligators was a random subplot. Was it Joe Dirt? Was that it? <laughs> Probably. Probably. I don't know. Um, but Animal's taken up alligator wrestling, which I kind of feel bad for the alligators because I don't think Animal's like going to approach that subtly. I think they just wake up one day and he's in their enclosure just grabbing them. Yeah. Is it wrestling if only <laughs> if only one side is playing a game or is this just alligator assault? Yeah, no, it's it's just assault. Okay. I just don't feel like I just don't feel like this is a mutually decided upon that. I just don't feel that there are any that they are. um playing with a mutually decided upon set of rules. Animal doesn't go by rules, he goes by feel. It's true, Animal is pure feeling. The moral of the story, of course, is be careful with your words to Animal. Don't say, go find a hobby. <laughs> he, he seems to be enjoying life, though. Like, it's... It's all he does. He's not man. sad as he's doing it. I bet if you were good at wrestling an alligator, I bet it's a thrill. Why not? I, I think I'm too jacked up on Fast and the Furious, because that actually was like, yeah, if you can do it, do it, you know? <laughs> Jump that car into space. You know what? Everyone's going to die at least once. You might as well. You might as well. Kermit goes on stage to introduce Bob Hope, but Fozzie informs him that Bob still hasn't made it there yet, which means that Kermit then has to stall. And I think this is kind of emblematic of the way the episode goes, because it's... I've never actually read Waiting for Godot, but it seems like that's the general premise. It's just like, this guy's going to show up at some point. What are we going to do about it? But Bob does show up, unlike Godot, I think. Uh, well, uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's really no need to go into Bob Hope's past triumphs in film, radio, and television, <clears throat> uh, but we may have to. Psst, psst. Kermit. Uh, Fozzie, is he here yet? No, I'm just going out to lunch. <laughs> can, I get, can I get you anything? Uh, Bob Hope. Uh, no. Sorry, you have to settle for pastrami on rye. <laughs> oh, oh, he's, he's here. He's here. Oh, yeah. Kermit. It's been a ball doing the show. Maybe we can do it again sometime, huh? Good night. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I feel like they could have done more with him. Um, but first of all, he comes out looking like Inspector Clouseau. Did you notice it's mm -hmm. the exact same costume that Peter Sellers was wearing when he was getting knives thrown at him? Yeah, it is. Second, yeah, the idea is that Bob comes out and goes, and I, I think it is a funny joke where he comes out and he's like, hey, everybody, it was a been, it's been great to be here because he's just so packed that he has no time. Um, yeah, so Kermit's like, but we're not even getting any, we're not getting any Bob Hope. And they're kind of selling the fact that he's, the thing is, like, there's a thread in comedy of, like, comedians 
making jokes about the fact that they're hacks. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, that's a style of joke. I don't know, man. Like, all this stuff's a hacky, you know? <laughs> like, it's all hacky. And, and so there's a certain point where you're not making a joke about being a hack. You're just being a hack. Yeah, but you didn't even say, hi, this is Bob. Happy to be on the Muppet Show Hope. I know, but I... Not even one, but I want to tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Or even, seriously, folks. Now, wait a minute. You just did my whole act. <laughs> yeah, but with no jokes. That's my act. I'm not, I'm not here to go to war with Bob Hope. He was a massive, massive entertainer. I don't know. It's weird. I kind of want to know more because we, we read the bio and I, you've read more of the bios than I have. I don't remember anything that focused specifically on the episode with Hope, but I do wonder if they actually had trouble just keeping him on screen. Like, okay, we've got Bob Hope, which is a big buy, but also we've got him for two hours. So no, I think that's the concept of the episode. I think, I think mm. that was the idea was he's so busy, you know, it, it's kind of a concept episode in that way. Hmm. I also wanted to mention a couple things before we get to the Zucchini Brothers coming in. He mentions that he'll get back in time because he'll take the Concord. Mm-hmm. But I'll be back. It'll be too late. No, won't. I'm taking the Concord. How long can that take? <laughs> if we land. Now, the Concord didn't have any accidents. Like, there were no full crashes of the Concord until 2000. So I'm trying to figure out what he meant, because at first I was like, too soon. I'm like, wait a minute, too early. Over 20 years till the Concord actually crashed. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what that little that little reference about it not landing was, you know, unless it's something I'm missing that was in the news at the time. I just assumed that it's something that went over my head. But like the Concord was a very big plane, wasn't it? It wasn't a big plane. It was a, it was a f- super fast plane. Hmm. It was the only supersonic passenger airliner it went uh, Mach 2 like mm-hmm. it went twice the speed of sound and it went from uh, it operated from 76 here's the thing is it operated from 76 to 2003 which means it would have been brand new when hope is making this joke so maybe people just didn't trust it yet mm-hmm. or because it was this foreign thing people didn't quite get it but uh it it i mean there were there were like 20 of them they built a whole like you know fleet of concours it just wasn't one plane but yeah the idea was they were legitimately supersonic airliners which our mm-hmm. current airliners are not. Yeah, and then they mentioned the Zucchini Brothers are back, our favorite Italian st- stereotypes this side of Mario Kart. It's me, Mario! They, uh, they, they, they come and take Bob to their convention. Well, he, he was originally skipping out on them in order yeah. to get there too, I think. Oh, they're yeah. completely justified. Sure. Yeah. They're completely justified. Uh, when we get to Statler and Waldorf, who... Well, Bob Hope is gone. I'm not surprised. It's what I've always said about this show. There's no hope. Then we get to another clip that has the potential to be super, super dark. It, it does. Super this dark. is a very famous one. Like, I, I knew what was happening as soon as it started, and we actually get a George appearance as well, as well which is kind of nice, but like... Kinda, yeah. And Elmo's unfortunate cousin, but like... Or actually, probably Ernie's unfortunate cousin, not Elmo's. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, uh, this is kind of a little... Um, this is a very dark sequel to Emmett Otter. <laughs> Cause, well, because several of the animals that they're using in this are Emmett Otter animals just stripped of their clothes. Like, you mm-hmm. can see the, the mare is in the background and some of the possums and stuff. They use Emmett Otter characters in this sketch to create the woodland animals. Um, so, it's like, so it's like you've got Emmett Otter, but then there's this dark side of Emmett Otter where they really, like, where this is how they see themselves. But then in real life, they're just animals that are being hunted. <laughs> well, that's what it's like when they're off-seasoned, is basically they can, they can make their drug bands. Uh, but basically, uh, an opossum and some other woodland animals sing for what it's worth. There's something happening here. 
what it is ain't exactly yeah. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I've got to beware It's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going round Stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going round Which is a 1967 anti-war anthem by Buffalo Springfield, originally written by Stephen Stills. Two of the verses were rewritten to transform it from being an anti-war song to being an anti-hunting song. No one has been officially credited for the additional lyrics. Yeah, it was just one of them up at writers or one of them up at uh, musicians, you know, on staff. Hmm. Yeah, for what it's worth is the pretty much the only hit by Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo Springfield brought us in, in the band Buffalo Springfield was Neil Young and Stephen Stills, who would later go on to form Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And then of course, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Neil Young. So it's the start, it's the start of kind of this uh, folk rock movement very early on, but it's their only real hit. And it's an anti-war song. If you, if you ever watch a movie that features the Vietnam war in any way, this is on it. There are three songs you will hear, right? You will hear Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival, maybe the greatest anti-war song of all time. You will hear Run Through the Jungle by Creedence Clearwater Revival, and you will hear For What It's Worth. The forest echoes silent wolves A million years of bucks and does Passed silently before can we all live our own way? We better stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going round. Stop, children. This one haunted me as a kid. I yeah. remember this one. This one's famous, and this one haunted me. This could have taken a turn into like much darker territory because the the hunters go on or they start speaking later on and talking about shooting stuff that's clearly not woodland animals, although they probably still shouldn't be trusted with guns because I think they were like shooting cars and stuff. They take the edge off it at the end, mm-hmm. but the way it's sung, there the, in the hushed tones that they kind of start singing in, and in when they get to the stop, like and, and they're legitimately hiding for their lives. It's really dark. It's really intense. This segment actually angered, and they got letters from like hunters. Um, Mm -hmm. Not because of its pacifist message, although it's, you know, it is clearly like siding with the animals in this situation, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't like its portrayal of the hunters as dangerous and careless and insane hillbillies. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, to be fair, not all hunters are that. And yes, one of them is George, but uh, he speaks with a different voice. He's voiced by Richard Hunt. He only has one line. So it's not really even, to me, that's more proof that he's just a whatnot now. Mm -hmm. George was originally performed by Frank and... In this scene, he's done, uh, it's Richard Hunt doing the voice because he sounds just like Statler. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's kind of just, you know, George is a whatnot now. It doesn't matter anymore what his character is. There's no continuity. There's no character. It's, we need this puppet for this situation. And whoever does this voice does this voice. And that's what a whatnot is, you know. Haunting number. Honestly, though, I still think, I think the highlight of the episode. Yeah. Just in its resonance and in its conceit. It's the best self-contained piece, I would say. Yeah, and its execution uh, is really good. And yeah, I've seen it lots of times. It probably is what introduced me to the song. I'm sure the first time I heard the song and it wasn't about animals, I was a little confused. I think it's a classic Muppet number, but I can see it being not for everybody. Yeah, that's that's a fair statement. Stop, 
we are lucky, and I by we I mean the audience are lucky, because we get two Muppet News Flashes this episode. The newsman is unlucky because we as the audience get two Muppet News Flashes this episode. <laughs> but yeah. the first of them comes uh, right after the For What It's Worth bit, um, where the newsman reports... Today is the opening day of the fishing season. And guns fire from off screen, which causes fish to fall from the sky. A little bit of a hunting motif this episode. As they hunt for hope. Like most amazing Muppet News Flashes, it's short, sweet, and to the point. He just gets pummeled with a bunch of fish. The newsman just deserves a very long and relaxing vacation. From there, we go backstage again, and Scooter informs Kermit that the Flying Zucchini Brothers are going to send Bob back by cannon. So the Zucchini Brothers have been seeing a lot more use this season. I don't think I knew who they were before I started the watch for the show. I'm wondering if they're a bigger part of the Muppet canon than... Well, canon with one end, or two ends instead of three. Uh, no, they're not. I think we're going to see them a couple more times this year, next year, and that's a, or maybe like a couple more times next year. They're they're just amongst the. Um, they're in it as much as say like you know Marvin Suggs or any of those characters. You know, they're just kind of part of the background. Think think of it like. Um, you know how the Simpsons has like tiered characters, basically, right? Yeah, you've got their first tier characters and their second tier characters. Like you know, this is a lower. They're they're they are they are part of the show, but they are a lower tier character. They they send Bob back by cannon. Uh, at which point, Bob steps on stage and says that he loves traveling by cannon. After all, I'm a high caliber performer. Can I make a, a terrible, terrible confession? Sure. I laughed at that. <laughs> it's okay. I forgive you. Yeah, I laughed at that one. And so Kermit's now excited because he gets to hear one of Bob's monologues, except there's no time because Bob's already late for a benefit for the Japanese pole vaulters retirement fund. No warning. No warning. And I mean, it's they fine. didn't, I don't think it leans in to any sort of stereotype or anything like that. No, no. It just, you wouldn't get away with doing the accents, you know. One bit of trivia I did want to bring up, according to Of Muppets and Men, the book, I believe, that goes along with the documentary, that Christopher Reeve... Superman himself was visiting the set. He was a friend of Jim's and he's actually operating one of the pole vaulters <laughs> because he was just there and wanted to do something. So he's operating one of the pole vaulters. He will of course be a guest later, but mm. uh, Superman was back there. The real Superman was back there uh, as one of the pole vaulters, which makes me very happy to think of Christopher Reeve down there. With the, I imagine he had a really good sense of humor because he was also really close with uh, Robin Williams so we, we get to see our, our well, I say our favorite, like we don't have a bunch of favorites, but we get to see the Swedish chef as he tries to prepare pressed duck. Apparently the way that you make press duck is with an iron. <laughs> I don't think that's going to cook it all the way through. I mean, you got to press one side for a certain amount of time, then you got to turn it over and press the other side. It's like a panini. I feel like he needs a bigger iron or a smaller duck, but like... No, that's fair. But I'm saying if you did it like panini style... Just get a foreman grill. It's fine. Of course, the duck steals the duck presser and will later drop it on the chef, knocking him unconscious. It's a nice, tidy Swedish chef bit. We've seen the duck puppet before. Yeah, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's a good bit. It's a solid bit. From there, we get our second Muppet News Flash of the evening. This is the opening night of the opera season. And... At which point, I, there's a, probably a, f a formal name for this kind of character archetype, but a, I guess a larger opera singer falls on the, the newscaster. 
Uh, yes, I guess it's just the um the proverbial fat lady, I guess. Um, hmm. but I don't even think it's that. I just think the idea is it was it was duck season or it was fish. It was fishing season, so a bunch of so they shot some fish, which is not how you well. I guess you can catch fish that way. This time it's opera season, and so they shoot an opera singer. From there, we we go to Rolf, who's performing. Beethoven's Pathetique. Scooter tells him he has to cut it short because the show's already running long. The show's running long. Make it as short as you can. <laughs> Rolf gets handed like sheet music and he's told this is what you're going to play tonight. And he's like, okay, I'll go on and play this. And then someone is inevitably going to come on. But it's okay because Rolf's probably at least quasi-stoned when he's up there. Yeah, he's, he's had some of those uh, jazz cigarettes. Hmm. Speaking of which, I really needed one to get through this next thing. So. What was this? What the hell was this, man? I feel like it was a Christmas musical. This is exactly like the Muppet Family Christmas. It's staged the exact same way as Muppet Family Christmas. But why is J.P. Gross there? I was confused by that, too. They just needed an old guy? Because I don't think it's his real voice. I think they use a different voice. Sing me the songs we delighted to know. him i was listening the vo- the singing voice he's using is not his normal jerry nelson voice so again it's almost like they're just using him as a whatnot in this maybe they just had to like deliver after telling him that he would have time on stage last week it's so weird it is they're sitting in a living room with jp in the in the in the chair that like the grandpa or the the that the patriarch would sit in, let's say, right, of the family. Kermit, Gonzo, Piggy, Fozzie, Scooter, Robin, Floyd. That's Murderer's Row, right? That's not, that's the leads of the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they're singing a medley of like one, two, three, like four old timey songs. I wrote them down. I'm not going to go through them. <laughs> like, it's not really worth it. It's just got a very odd tone to it. Like you said, it does, it absolutely feels like a Christmas special. Um, this was the UK spot. I didn't know what to make of this, man. It, it's, it stays like a Christmas special. There's no context given to it. Heck, they've got Fozzie and Piggy in the scene. They've got Rolf and Kermit in the scene. They've broke out everybody. There's there's different puppeteers operating either Fozzie or Piggy. You know, like they've done all these things for this really bizarre scene. Is there any word other than bizarre? <laughs> Weirdly saccharine? Yeah. I didn't even realize it was a medley. The thing is... Yeah, no, you, it's hard to tell. Yeah, It doesn't feel out of place for the episode but that's mostly because the episode's kind of all play all over the place as it is yeah but it did make me wonder if like there was more stuff in the episode that was christmas themed that i just hadn't picked up on it's not it looks like it's a it's a, a camera test for a christmas special that could be it there's not a lot more to say about it though no um, no, no it's it's weird uh from there we we move to muppet labs where dr bunsen honeydew is 
having scooter feed an automatic wastebasket, which I guess is the 70s version of those trash cans that like compact your trash for you. Yeah, I thought about that too, like at the mall. Yeah. But it turns out that the wastebasket is kind of insatiable and ends up trying to devour Beaker, which just made me think of the old folktale of the golem just needing more stuff and then eventually turning on the person because it's irritated about it. No, he commits extortion. Yeah. Because... He's trying to sell this thing. This is the first time they've been trying to sell something, really. He's trying to Mm. sell this monster, this abomination that he's made that he calls a trash can. Beaker's trying to feed it, and then it... Just imagine never having to empty a wastebasket again. Order your wastebasket today. It comes in both regular or housebroken models. Do try to keep him quiet, please. Send us, just send us twenty two ninety five, and we'll send you a Muppet waste basket. Or send us thirty two ninety five, and we won't. It's like, whoa! It's not very nice at all. So I've got a list. I haven't really been working on it for very long. There are Muppet characters that would actually make very interesting villains. Like if you were to play them in a traditional context, interesting villains. Um, the top of the list is actually Gonzo at the moment because. He's a sympathetic one, but he's not doing it for the evils because everyone was mean to him, but just it gets him attention and he's got a negative reinforcement loop. But Dr. Bunsen Honeydew is potentially the only actual sociopath in the Muppet crew. No, he, he is. Uh, he's up there. He's up there. It's the most consistent show I've seen. Yes, they get worse every single week. <laughs> From there, we, we return to Bob, who... I, I had to wonder, as he keeps zipping in and out of the Muppet Show episode, does he think he's coming back to repeat episodes like, oh, I'm back at the Academy Awards again, or oh, it's another USO tour? He's so busy, he's, you know, quadruple booked his time. Mm-hmm. And so he's going back and forth. He's showing up in different outfits. Conceptually, I see where they got this idea. I see whether it was Jerry or one of the other writers. I, I see where this idea came from. I think they sh- could have found something better to do with Bob Hope. Mm-hmm. I, I think at the end of the day, the idea of it is very funny, but the result is very unsatisfying. I don't know the word for it, but it's it feels slowly frantic. Like, yeah, there's a protracted sense of frantic energy there that is never fully resolved. It's disjointed for a reason, right? Mm. And, and, and like I said, there is a conceit to it that I think is funny. I just think the execution isn't great. And I think that it, that it um, miscalculates how satisfying that will be, especially given that his final number is what it is this was funny though i like how he conned bob in this though <laughs> i did like that uh we don't have time for your monologue now what well, well why not well, well gonzo the great is on next he's going to do his impersonations of bread i've seen gonzo's impersonations of bread he's backstage now loafing around oh that's very good but but seriously i can't disappoint him he's been practicing his pumpernickel for weeks but uh, he's left crumbs all over the backstage. Yeah, I've met some of them. <laughs> Sorry about that. But listen, Bob, if you want, you could do the cowboy sketch at the end of the show. The cowboy sketch? Mm-hmm. Is it good? Is it good? Oh, the cowboy sketch is terrific. I was going to do it myself, but it's yours. Oh, that's great. Boy, the cowboy sketch sounds better than the monologue anyway. Gonzo's line where he's like, you know what, Kermit, no matter what, don't try to convince me to do that stupid... Mm-hmm. Kermit, Kermit, cancel my bread impersonations act. Why? What happened? Oh, he didn't deliver my poppy seeds. You wouldn't want me to work out there naked, would you? Why not? You've got the crust for it. Well, 
Listen, Kermit, just because my bread impersonations are canceled, don't think that you can talk me into doing that lousy cowboy sketch, okay? I thought that was cute. The, so the I I think I've owned a pair of Nikes like the ones that we're going to see, and I, I realize we're getting ahead of ourselves. But um, actually, I'll I'll touch on that when we get there because that horse is disturbing. But we we go backstage again, and animals picked up another ho- <laughs> hobby because wrestling alligators is easy for animal. And if you think about it, animals are very limber muppets. So that makes sense. They're never really sure which angle he's going to attack from. <laughs> he's taken up bowling, which sounds great. Until they realize that he's taken up bowling overhand. That's the best line in the episode. Oh, wow, that's much better. Much better and much safer. Mm, I don't know, man. Animal bowls overhand. The best one's the one that nails Scooter. The, the, it just, the, just, the, just drops Scooter. <laughs> Everything about Floyd's dynamic with Animal this episode just makes me think that Animal is Don Quixote and <laughs> Floyd is Sancho. Yeah, there is a little bit of that, yeah. I am going to scour to see if I can find any behind-the-scenes stories or information about this moment. Because, obviously, those are just people from off-screen throwing the balls, and they do not know where they're going to land. <laughs> right? They're, I mean, they're mm-hmm. not they're not computer generated. They're not, this is not how you do it back then. How you do it is you have it set up and then whoever's not in the scene or whatever crew members they could get to do it are off screen throwing balls. And so whoever nailed Scooter, who's in the upper level, he's, he's like outside of Piggy's room. Whoever nailed Scooter dead on in the chest and dropped him. Fantastic shot. Fantastic shot. Because the rest of them just kind of bang around the place or whatever. But that one really hits its mark. It's really good. Scooter couldn't dodge a wrench. He couldn't dodge a ball. <laughs> uh, as the great Rip Torn once said. So, uh, yeah, I, I laughed. Maybe that was my favorite moment of the episode. <laughs> was when Scooter got pegged. <laughs> so from there we go to Rolf backstage. Or not Rolf isn't backstage. Rolf is in front of the piano performing a song called Nola. which is a complicated number. So Rolf engages his inner Eldritch abomination and sprouts a third arm. Yeah, this is weird, man. (laughs) It was. There are levels to it. There are places I could have taken jokes with this. I'm going to avoid half of them. There's also something about Rolf just not freaking out about the third arm being there, which means that Rolf might not actually be a dog. He might be something more like Stitch. Ooh, yeah. It was weird, man. Like it was, uh, you're watching it and you're like, okay, we've already, and it's strange too, because you're like, oh, we've already had a Rolf piano number this episode. We doubled it twice this episode because we had two Muppet News slashes as well. Yeah, that's true. Which is why the uh, the bit about the episode running long and Bob not being able to go on felt weird, or one of the reasons it felt weird. Yeah, where's that hand coming from? So our next bit, mm-hmm. surprisingly not nightmare fuel, because it could have, it would have been very easy for them to lean into that. It's pretty close. But the orange of the horse makes me think that it was made for Nickelodeon. Like, everything about this screams 90s Nickelodeon. Down to the really orange Nikes that he's wearing. Or I think those are Nikes. Are those... I don't know what they are. Those might be New Balances. They're they're Asics. They're not, they're not Asics. Um, <laughs> but Bob Hope is riding along on a two-bit horse, so named because it's bit Bob twice. Bob and the horse sing Don't Fence Me In, which is a Cole Porter song. Oh, give me land, lots of land, under starry skies above. 
don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open spaces that I love. Don't fence me in. It was originally released in 1934 and made famous by Roy Rogers in 1944 in a film called Canteen. Yeah, it was one of Roy Rogers' kind of signature tunes. And uh, yeah, as I have in the notes, Rolf did sing this with Jimmy Dean once, at least once, Mm -hmm. which doesn't surprise me when you hear it, right? It's on brand for it. But yeah, so the idea of this number is that it's intentionally kind of goofy and kind of humiliating Mm -hmm. and no one's wanted to do it. And uh, so they con Bob into doing what is basically his only number. Yeah. Everything else is he drops in, gives you a couple one-liners and leaves. I don't think I want this to be my one number. (laughs) That was also probably part of the joke, but... It is. I I get it. Like I said, I get the meta idea. I get the bigger idea. I just don't find it particularly entertaining. Mm -hmm. This could have been a good opening number for him. This Mm kind of like Tweedledee was with JP Morgan, you know, where it's like, oh, you make them do something silly right off the bat or something. And they can even comment about, you know, I came onto this show and now I got to do this stupid horse sketch, cowboy sketch or whatever. Like you could have done something with that and still had it be this kind of goofy thing. And it could have opened the show. Instead, this is his big closing number. I've definitely seen him be funnier than he is in this. I, yeah, he's, I, he's not a non-entity because his absence is kind of the point, but yes. He's a big he's a big part of the story of the episode. This is one of those cases where you were more interested in being able to say that you had Bob Hope on the show than actually having Bob Hope on the show. It's like, yeah, Bob Hope was there once. It is uh it, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. To the rich where the west go on forever but i think we'll give you a break and bring this episode of the muppet show to a close but before we do let's have a warm thank you for our very special guest star ladies and gentlemen mr bob hope although the the ending does lead credence to your idea that how fast they shot this because he's back wearing his inspector clouseau outfit in the final in the goodbye i do love the ending though because animals picked up a new hobby and yeah (laughs) Weird. It's a weird runner through the episode, the hunting thing. It, it does sort of bring it home, though. And he's shouting uh, Bunny Rabbit in the same way he shouts Discuss. Animal's got a new hobby. He's taking up hunting. Hunting? Ah! Bunny Rabbit! Bunny Rabbit! He's chasing a bunny rabbit around the stage with... Is that supposed to be some sort of a rifle? Was it a rocket launcher? What was he firing? Yeah, it looked like an RPG of some sort. <laughs> uh, I think back then you would have called it a bazooka. I think just the generic term for it back then, uh, we would have called it a bazooka. But yeah, it's not it, It's not a hunting rifle, that's for sure. But you're right, the end of it, the ending is pretty funny. Um, but uh, again, not not the best episode. A couple of good numbers. Uh, I think for what it's worth is mem- is a despite one's level of enjoyment, it is a notable piece. Mm-hmm. Some of the animal stuff is really funny. Hope was again they found they they came up with a way to use Bob Hope that is too cute by half. That's a good way to put that.
again to the Muppet Show, where anything can happen, unfortunately. Uh, but on the bright side, our special guest star tonight is one of the great names in popular music, and here she is now, Miss Teresa Brewer! So like I said at the top of the show, I did not care for episode 222. We're not going to be mean. We're not going to be angry. I think if you listen to the show, you know that we love this stuff and that we remain po- We try to remain positive and we, we uh, try to find the best in everything. But I was offended by this next episode, and I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's wrong to point that out. Uh, but first I'll talk about... Uh, our special guest star, Teresa Brewer. So Teresa, although it was originally Teresa with a, an extra um, T in there somewhere, Veronica Brewer, but it was U-E-R and not, w, not W-E-R. It started off as Teresa Brewer and ended up being Teresa Brewer. Uh, was born on May 7th, 1931 in Toledo, Ohio. She was the eldest of five siblings. Um, she got married in 1949, which means she was only 18, and would have four daughters from that marriage that would uh, eventually end in 1972. The marriage, not the daughters. Can't find many details, uh, but sometime around 49, she was discovered as a singer by an agent who signed her to London Records, and she recorded a song called Copenhagen. But its B-side was a song called Music, 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 which we will hear in this episode. And that really took off, sold over a million copies, and became by far her most famous song, maybe her only famous song. Uh, while with London Records, she had a few other novelty hits, uh, things called like Chewing Gum and Molasses Molasses. It was a different time, man. I don't know what you want me to say. It was a different time. Let's lean into abstraction. Music, 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 chewing gum and molasses. It's like, let's find the most benign things to talk to, to write songs about. She changed uh, record companies in 1951, had a few more hits, some originals, some covers. The only one I recognized was Tweedledee, actually, uh, that she did, which we recently watched J.P. Morgan reluctantly perform. Mm. And that's the one that Kermit claimed was the first thing that the Muppets ever did. In 1953, she appeared in the film musical Those Redheads from Seattle. And her song from the film Baby, Baby, Baby was a hit single for her. Baby, 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 love me, love me, do. Love me, love me, true. The way that I love you. Not as big as music, 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 but still, Baby, Baby, Baby was a big hit. She's a big fan of the rule of threes. Isn't that a Justin Bieber song? Baby, 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 that's just Baby. I don't know. Shortly after her divorce in 72, she married record producer Bob Thiel. Uh, in the late 70s, she obviously did The Muppet Show, uh, an episode of Sha Na Na as well, uh, around the same time. In the 80s and 90s, she came back to the music scene as a jazz vocalist on her husband's record label. They put together several albums, many of them tributes to classic performers like Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, and Irving Berlin. In 1992, she released Softly I Swing, which is one of her best regarded records, kind of a soft jazz album. I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree And I feel like I'm clinging to a cloud can't understand. I get misty just holding your hand. In 1996, Bob Thiel died of kidney failure. 
After her husband's passing, Brewer never recorded again. In total, according to Wikipedia, she had recorded nearly 600 songs, and she has a star on the Walk of Fame at 1708 Vine Street. She died in 2007 from progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a neuromuscular disease in New Rochelle, New York. She was 76. So uh, 600 songs, but I had no idea who she was and found very little to hold on to. She worked, though. She, it seemed like she did put a lot in. Muppet Show 222 with special guest star Teresa Brewer, produced middle of July 1977, premiered uh, that uh, winter. And this is a Philip Casson joint. Um, in our cold open, Scooter calls for, this is gonna, this is gonna be a, it's not really a running gag, it's more of a sandwich gag, mm. a bookend gag, where Scooter uh, calls for Teresa, asking if she needs any help, and she tells him that she could use a hand, and then a giant blue hand comes out of nowhere and kind of whops her, and uh, that's her getting a hand. Pretty simple joke, it will come back. It's not a Muppet, it's not inspired by anything, it doesn't, it's apropos of nothing, it's just a, it's just a sight gag. <laughs> I did think it funny during during the credits when Statler and Waldorf come into their box, Blue Frackle is sitting in Statler's seat. Statler asks if he can see his ticket stub. <laughs> no ticket. And uh, Gonzo, when he goes to blow his trumpet, he blows fire. <sighs> okay, Nick. Okay, Nick. Um, our first number. So here's what, here's how I do it. This is my episode, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lay it out, and um, you tell me if I'm off on anything, first of all. The first number would come up on Teresa, who is a blonde white lady. I say that because it is relevant in this for this number. She is on what you would call kind of a riverboat set, like mm. an old timey riverboat, like you get on the movie from the movie Showboat or something, you know, that, that you'd find down in Louisiana. Uh, she's got some of the mayhem with her, and she's got Fozzie who's driving the boat. And Teresa sings a song called Cotton Fields. When I was a little bit of baby, my mama would rock me in the cradle. Cotton Fields is a song that is mostly accredited to Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly, who is the, one of the most legendary blues men of all time. Now, he didn't lay this song down till 1941, but he also didn't write it. It was passed down, passed down, and passed down. And it is a song about someone sitting in the cotton fields with their mom. And it's not one of Leadbelly's more depressing songs. You know, his songs can get pretty bleak, but this one's actually fairly upbeat. I'm actually, I'm going to play a little bit of it just for a second here. When I was a little baby, my mother rocked me in the cradle. And I'm old confused at home. When I was a little baby, my mother would rock me in the cradle. And I'm old confused at home. Oh, when them cotton balls get rotten, you couldn't pick very much cotton. And I'm so did that sound like a pop song with yodeling in it no um <laughs> she does a cover of this now to be fair this song's been covered by a lot of people including the beach boys and stuff it's not necessarily verboten to people but it feels real tone deaf to have this lady singing a song that is clearly about being a slave or at least from the point of view of a slave. I think this sketch is the equivalent of those people that look at Gone with the Wind and become real wistful for earlier and simpler times. 
it feels very antebellum. And it's... We just don't see what's propping up the economy. But, um... <laughs> right. Yeah. Them including it on the show is probably just them... I, I think you're right when you say it's kind of tone-deaf. I don't think there's any extra intent behind it. No. And, and like you said, other bands had covered it, so it's not like... I mean, I, and I'm by the way, I'm not necessarily saying that those bands were right either. There's a dissonance there, right? It's, do you understand what the song you're singing is about? Or is it just a song? Yeah. There's something else we also have to keep in mind is Song of the South is also going to be a pretty big hit around this point in time. Yeah. Um, and Jim's from Mississippi, so he would have grown up around a lot of this stuff. Right. But there's um, Song of the South and a Bakshi movie called Coonskin are both based on the same collection of short stories that were published by a guy named Joel Chandler Harris, who would have been progressive for his time. But That's the Uncle, Uncle Remus stories, right? Right. The Uncle Remus stories. But he didn't credit or pay any of the slaves that he got those stories from. Is that Br'er Rabbit and everything, too? Yeah, the Bear Rabbit story is, but the thing about that is Coonskin, which has a problematic title for a number of reasons, is still a less racist movie than Song of the South, because the central premise of Song of the South is that life was better when we were slaves, whereas yeah. Coonskin is Rolf Bakshi being like, America's kind of a dirty, messy place. Let's look at how it treats people. Also, I've got Barry White. <laughs> but this is definitely more Song of the South than Coonskin. And the thing is, people that would be offended by Coonskin but not Song of the South aren't going to see a problem with this. I'm going to say this ahead of time. I didn't watch these with my kids tonight because uh, they're out of town. And I missed them very much. But I was glad they weren't here tonight because I would not have because I would not have shown them this episode. I would have lied and told them we would have watched something else because um, I didn't want them watching this episode. And this is only the first reason, but there are many others. This one would have gone over their head as far as its cultural significance. but And then what my wife noticed, or what really kind of killed it for her, was the yodeling. She yodels. I immediately got out my phone to pull up the lead belly to see if there was any kind of maybe like scatting or something that she was, you know, re replacing. No, she just yodels in it. You can't get any whiter than yodeling, Nick. It's pretty high up there on the white scale because it's real Nordic. Hmm. It just felt, uh, it, it felt tone deaf. It felt unfortunate. I don't think there's any malice in it. I can't say that about later uh, things in this episode. So we'll move on, but not great. So, um, I hated this episode. This is, I think, the worst episode that we've watched, or at least the one that I enjoyed watching the least. There are probably some early episodes in season one that were clunkier, not as well made. But as far as me enjoying it, I did not enjoy this episode. I, I would definitely say that it missed its mark. Actually, my problem is I think it hit its mark. <laughs> I think that's the problem. Hey, Kermit, have you decided what you're going to do about Miss Piggy's big ballet number next week? Yeah, Scooter, I'm afraid we're going to have to cut it. <gasps> but, but why? Well, have you seen Miss Piggy recently? I mean, she's getting a little bulgy. And then these two disgusting men make several jokes about Piggy's weight, not knowing that she is uh, at the door to her dressing room listening in. You know, the pork no longer fits in the barrel. Yeah, yeah her wiggles are beginning to waddle a little. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way the old pork rolls. I don't think this is cool then. 
It wasn't, but it's also, there have been a lot of comments about Piggy's weight up to this point. There's something about the way that it's being drawn into focus here that doesn't, typically there's some sort of a weird balance and counterbalance aspect of each of them being really terrible to each other. And this is just everyone focusing on Piggy. This is just mean. Mm. This episode is mean. I like my Muppets to be ironic. I like them to be sarcastic. I like them to be cynical, even. I don't like mean. They're kind of making fun of her weight and Piggy goes like, you know, and Piggy overhears and pretends that she didn't and is like, oh, I'm going to, I decided I'm going to go on a diet. And then she says, I'm going to lose five pounds. And then Kermit, like a giant f- asshole. Uh, how much weight do you plan to lose? Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe five. Ten. Ten. Fifteen. Do I hear twenty? Twenty pounds. Oh. For my uh, new Kermit the Frog is awful in this episode. Awful. He's an awful person in this episode. That's what's weird about it. He's not just like insane. He's awful person in it. So then um, we do Pigs in Space. Uh, so so from now on, we're going to have kind of a food theme going on and a weight thing going on, a fat thing going on. Now, I knew when we started this show, and we mentioned it when we started covering The Muppet Show back when, I don't even remember. <laughs> Hasn't been that long, but it feels like forever. It's been a long year. We talked about the fact that there would be fat jokes at Piggy's expense and that we were going to have to deal with that. And that one of the problems was going to be that a lot of them were going to be funny. These aren't funny. There are some that will be, like you said, if there's more of a give and take, if there's more of a both sides are wrong, if there's, you know, if it comes out in the heat of passion. This is not a heat of passion. This isn't like just throwing an insult at somebody because you're angry at them. I don't know. Kermit's calculated. This is two men calculating and talking about a woman's body behind her back and trying to keep her career back from it. It's just gross. And it doesn't matter when it was made. It's gross. So then we have Pigs in Space. As we left our heroes last time, Captain Hogthrob had just discovered the awful truth. Yes, Captain? Our oxygen is almost gone, fuel supplies are down to nothing, and the water is all used up. Link orders Piggy to make more swill. I don't know the ingredients of swill. I don't think there are really ingredients for swill. But he decides to make her, so again, leaning into their sex. And again, I like when Link is sexist. That's part of his character, right? But he's always, but he's shown as an idiot doing it. I thought this was a serious science fiction story. Yes, but we've got 25 adult pigs on this spaceship. We can't survive without swill. What do you suggest, Captain? Miss Piggy, go cook us some swill. supposed to give orders. Fine, then give us 25 orders of swill. <laughs> and one side of coleslaw. <laughs> Besides, I am a gourmet cook. Good, then give us 25 orders of swill stroganoff. <laughs> All right, that does it. I refuse to continue this sketch. You hear me? I'm done with it. And she quits. And Scooter comes and is like, guys, you need to get off the sketch. And then the alarm goes off because there's two things happening in this sketch. One, Piggy is not happy, and there's all these food references and stuff, and Piggy's not happy. The other half is Link and Strangepork think they're really on a spaceship. <laughs> That's the other half of this sketch. That's the funny part of the sketch, is that Link, and but it gets buried in all the other bullshit around it. Link and Strangepork think Scooter is an alien, which if you look like Link and Strangepork and Scooter comes in, he looks like an alien. Yeah. If you're a pig and that little orange thing comes in with the big eyes, alien. Hey, you guys, Kermit says get on with a sketch, okay? Red alert, emergency! The hideous space creature has boarded a ship! The hideous space creature from outer space, we are doomed! Uh, 
so now we get what I think is the highlight of the episode. Animal sits at his drum kit alone uh, and plays. Everybody knows Wild Thing. It, now, this is going to shock you. It was a, first a song for a band called The Wild Ones, um, written by one of their members, Chip Taylor. But it's best known for the uh, 1966 cover by The Trogs. If you've ever heard Wild Thing at a baseball game or um, strip club or uh, or watching the you know Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes masterpiece, Major League, you're hearing the Trogs version. Ah! But Animal sits at his drum and he plays Wild Thing, and he plays just a really fun, but then he gets caught in a loop at the end, just going Wild Thing over and over again. Janice and then another pig come out and they're like in scrubs, but they should have little white coats on, but I guess they didn't have little white coats to put on them, so they put them in like the ER scrubs. And they basically got like, what, like butterfly nets? (laughs) Effectively, yeah. And uh, it's very clear that they've come to take the wild thing to the sanitarium, to his padded cell. I wonder where they took him. Well, wherever it is, I'll bet it's more fun than here. (laughs) Gonzo's got a pretty cool stunt this week. So he's going to hang. He's got got a feather boa hanging up on the stage. And he's, of course, wearing his, like, jumpsuit and his leotard and his cape. And there's a feather boa. And he's hanging from it by his nose. And he starts now, when Kermit introduces him, Kermit just says he's coming out to do some Shakespeare. But then Gonzo starts with... Merchant of Venice. Act one, scene one. Antonio speaks. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. The first line of Merchant of Venice, right? Like act scene one, act... He, he starts off scene one, act one of Merchant of Venice. My question is, how far was he planning on getting... As far as he could. Is that what it was? Oh, I'm sure. Reading Merchant of Venice would take you hours. Gonzo would absolutely make the audience sit there for hours as long as he was up there by his nose. He's not even reading it, though. He's reciting it. Is that How much of Merchant of Venice does Gonzo the Great have memorized? You say, sir. Uh, but then he sneezes and, it, and he falls because <laughs> he was like nine stories or like nine feet up or something. <laughs> yeah. As soon as it starts, you're like, he's going to sneeze. There was no other way to get out of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then we have a very cringe worthy scene where uh, Piggy comes back to talk to Teresa to get some advice uh, on behalf of a friend of hers who has a teeny tiny weight problem. What makes you think I know anything about being fat? Oh, Miss Brewer, I've always known that you were one of us skinny people. I thought that maybe you might have heard something from one of your fat friends. Well, maybe I can help. I was just about to have some lunch. Would you care to join me? And she, like, has milkshakes and all this food and cakes and stuff. And she's like, don't you just hate people who are on diets? So even even the guest stars kind of being a fat phobe in this, right, Is, is body shaming in this? Even the guest stars getting in on it? I don't know if it's body shaming as much as she's just, I think she's trying to imply that she just has her physique naturally. I don't know. She doesn't get mad enough at Kermit here in a second for me, mm. but she's being tempted by all this food. And before Piggy, you know, uh, uh, succumbs to temptation. temptation. Kermit comes in. Uh, Piggy, hmm. uh, you're, you're supposed to be on a diet. Uh, 
Uh, you weren't thinking of doing anything with that uh, cake there, were you, fat stuff? Usually I would go up to bat for Kurt. It's, it's real difficult this episode. Um, and then Piggy says not until now and gets the only thing that could happen is she smushes his face down into the cake. Too little too late, in my opinion. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't... I get it, but, like, Kurt, uh, I get the Kermit's the heel in this situation. I prefer an oblivious heel like Gonzo or mm. someone that doesn't know they're being an asshole, but, like, he calls her fat stuff. It's just f***ing gross. Yeah. Uh, it is a funny shot when his face goes into the cake, though. I thought that was funny. Do you put Muppets in the washing machine? Pro- they can't. Surely not, right? No. You, you've got to wash this by hand. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I assume so. So we get at the dance, and guess what we get it at the dance, Nick? We get diet jokes. So this is not, a, not just Piggy's story. It's a theme. In the same way that last episode, they had a hunting number, and then all of a sudden there were a bunch of hunting jokes. This week, mm. we get a bunch of weight jokes. I lost 180 pounds of ugly fat in just one week. Oh, how'd you do that? I divorced my husband. Oh. That's an old joke, but that's funny. That's not actually a weight joke, though. There's a clear pivot there. Yeah, it's it's a it's a joke about what a useless piece of crap men can be, which, fair. But um, but then there's one where the, the dancers fall through the floor. Because the woman's so heavy, and they all fall through the floor. As far as I'm concerned, being fat's all in your head. I don't think it's all in your head. (laughs) And then she had the nerve to tell me that I was overweight. Can you believe that? Overweight? Isn't that the most absurd thing you ever heard? Now we get the UK spot, which I did enjoy. It's still on theme, kinda. It's kind of a classic Louis Armstrong track called Cheesecake. One, and, two, and. Oh, cheesecake munching on a cheesecake munching on a cheesecake. Cheesecake munching on a cheesecake munching on a cheesecake. Cheesecake gobble gobble cheesecake gobble gobble cheesecake. But a cheesecake, gobble, gobble, cheesecake, gobble, gobble, cheesecake. You like cheesecake? I don't. Slight, slight tangent. The actual uh, cake, not the song. Well, no, no, the song's fine. I've got a buddy that keeps finding himself dating women who really, really like horror movies, even though he doesn't like horror movies. And there have been a number of times when I've been potentially involved with someone who's really proud of her ability to make cheesecake. Mm-hmm. So I'll eat the cheesecake without mentioning the fact that I don't really like cheesecake. But I don't understand what the like how that keeps happening. Because once or twice, <laughs> it's just... Like, there's some sort of underpinning connection between some personality trait that I find attractive and also a very sincere pride in one's ability to make cheesecake. The song was fun. Yeah. It's just Dr. Teeth and some monsters singing about how much they love cheesecake. Then they still managed to ruin it, though, by having Piggy come in chasing the cheesecake. The thing is, outside, if you were to see this clip without the context of the rest of the episode, that wouldn't bother you. But within That's context... True. In the context of the episode, it, this was the UK spot, but in the context of the episode, it feels just like... It, 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 well, and it is more on that storyline. Uh, so then uh, Teresa and Kermit are backstage in her dressing room again. A lot of time in her dressing room uh, going through her autograph book. Uh, apparently she uh, gets autographs from everybody she's working with. Uh, everybody she, you know, she's got like Bob Hopes and Bing Crosby's and Louis Armstrong's. Um, and there's a funny joke about she's got a burnt hole in it. And that's where Crazy Harry signed an autograph. I've never seen a star ask for another star's autograph. It's not usually something something people do. And Kermit's kind of like... Hey, I, I didn't uh, know you were getting autographs of uh, us Muppets. Of course. I think I've got just about all of the Muppets' autographs. Oh, well, you, well, you haven't gotten all of them. You know, you're right. 
I'm missing the most important one. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, gee. You know, the collection would be worthless without it. Yeah, well, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't know what to say. Well, just tell me how to get animals autographed. You know what, dude? I got no sympathy right now. And uh, she's like, you're right. I am missing somebody. I'm missing animal signature. And Kermit's like, what? And then animal comes in and signs it right on her head. And it's a weird combination of a gang initiation and Ash Wednesday. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good description for that. If you look real close, is it a pentagram? Can't tell. It looks like something out of Jet Set Radio, but. It's the only time. It's the only like, it's the only moment of personality she shows like in the whole thing almost. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we go to the, the Muppet Labs where the sociopath is going to perpetrate more torture on his, I'm assuming, unpaid intern, but maybe he gets paid. Um, In shock treatment? I will give it this one. At least Beaker fights back in this one a little bit. So uh, Bunsen is, is uh, he's created an electric nose warmer. What could per- possibly go wrong? And he decides to test it on Beaker, and it's basically, yeah, it basically electrifies Beaker through his nose. But what's great is at the end, and he's like, at the end, Beaker grabs Bunsen with intent. Mm -hmm. You're feeling this, too. And at the end, they're both being electrocuted. Beaker shows some agency, I thought. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I like it when Scooter sings. Uh, He comes out to sing at the hop. You can rock it, you can roll it, you can stop and even stroll it at the hop, 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 hop. When the record starts to spin and your calypso when you're chicken at the hop, 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 hop. So do the dance sensation and it's sweeping the nation at the hop, 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 hop. Which is, you know, old Danny and the Juniors song everybody's heard at the hop. And uh, uh, if you've never heard of Danny and the Juniors from Philadelphia, don't be surprised. This is by far the most famous song ever recorded. The, mo- the most famous song they ever recorded. It's fa- far more famous than they ever were. And the idea is Scooter singing the hop, which is, of course, about the hop being a, a dance in the 1950s. And then the idea is then the fro- the you know, a bunch of frogs, our old uh, multicolored frog prince frogs come in singing hop, 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 hop. And then it just devolves into everybody hopping. I'd rather have seen the whole number than the joke, honestly. But yeah, it, it's it's in that Wayne Wanda structure mm-hmm. of, you know, starting a number one way and then it kind of falling apart. Fairly forgettable. So then we we continue our awful story. Piggy, uh, it's been 20 minutes since she started her diet, which is another kind of dig on her that she can't make it 20 minutes. Um, and she's hungry. And here's, here's, here's the scene that broke my heart. Like, she goes to the mirror to see if she's lost any weight yet. Now, it's only 20 minutes, so the joke is, of course, she hasn't lost any weight. But she looks in the mirror and she calls herself ravishing. She likes the way she looks. I must have lost weight because I look hot as hell. There's a Lizzo song going on in her head right now. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Feeling good as hell. Head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Feeling good as hell. Woo, child. She's, she likes how she looks. And then she goes over to the scale and she steps out and, and the scale breaks. Here's where the show, to me loses uh, loses me entirely because this isn't the characters being mean this is real this is the show being mean kermit saying piggy's fat is one character being an asshole to another character piggy stepping on a scale and it breaking is the the show telling us that she's fat enough to break a scale that's where it gets mean to me because it, it stops being subjective and it becomes oddly objective if that makes any sense it's it's a universally reinforced constant. It, well, it just it becomes an objective fact now that she's super heavy. R- right after she saw herself in the mirror and thought she looked great, and then she, you know she punches the scale and it blows up or whatever. But the fact that it breaks when she weighs herself, the, the the narrative objectively telling us that she is heavy enough to break a scale 
Not Kermit saying she's heavy enough to break a scale. Not Gonzo. Not anybody making a crack about her. Not someone that we can write off as a heel or write off as a liar or write off as being an asshole. This is reality saying, oh no, she's way too heavy. This next one's also strange. So I'm always happy to see Sweetums. Spinning wheel. Very strange. How would you explain this? I, I want to know how this was pitched, honestly. But uh, basically, they, they keep cutting to Statler and Waldorf in order to shift positions so that Sweetums is either... So the idea... So there's a song called Spinning Wheel. It's an old Blood, Swe- Blood Sweat, and Tears song from like 1968. There's a funny story about the lead singer of that band and uh, Judy Collins, but you know, I'm not going to get into it. But but the idea is that they start... It's it, it, Sweetums is pushing her Teresa on a swing. And there she's going to be singing the song Spinning Wheel. But every time, but there's a line in the song that says whatever goes, what. What goes up must come down. And he like pushes her and then she doesn't come back down. And there's three of these little vignettes of them trying to get the number right with Stetler and Muldorf commentating in between. You know, she goes up and she doesn't come down. She uh, goes up and then goes all the way around and comes back behind and hits him from behind. She flies off. And won't, you know, so there's just a couple of different ways that like the idea is they're trying to do this number. It's kind of like five Wayne and Wanda stacked on top of each other. That's a fair description. So Piggy has decided now to to um, watch a workout here's, show. Here's the thing about this one, and you're justifiably upset, but watching this was kind of surreal. And I should have seen where it was going, but Physical by Olivia and john has been stuck in my head all week, and I don't know why. It's really upsetting, but that was sort of playing underneath this entire scene, and it just completely recontext Not for the better. Completely recontextualized. Her it. doing the exercises doesn't bother me. Her listening to an exercise program and being like, I'm going to do some, let's, uh, you know, we're getting to the end here. So I'm just going to pontificate for one second. There is a way to do this Mm -hmm. without being mean. There is a way to tell this story where Piggy becomes self-conscious of her weight, even if it is her overhearing someone saying something about it. She can overhear that, become self-conscious, go on a diet, try to lose weight, struggle with it. You can still have that story without all of the specifically, especially male characters, but also, unfortunately, I hate to say, the filmmakers, the puppeteers, Jim Henson himself being mean to her and making fun of her for being fat and making fun of fat people. You can do it differently. You can do it in a much more sympathetic way. That can still be just as funny. That doesn't need to make Piggy all of a sudden into our hero. Piggy's got her own problems. I just feel like as a writer, I'm looking at going like, there's such a better way to do this, guys. Yes, this scene is kind of funny where she's working out, but she's listening. She's watching a show called The Chub Club. Welcome to The Chub Club, the only TV show where we lose viewers by the ton. <laughs> well, Chubby's ready to lose a little lard. Ready to lose a few tubes? Let's start with a little exercise, All shall right. we? Okay, chin up, chest out, deep breath, touching toes. One, two. I thought the funniest bit was when she does the leg lifts, because she's still wearing her stiletto heels when she does the leg lifts. And we don't see her. She's on the floor, so we only see her legs come up. I thought that was a very funny image. <laughs> but again, I, I just feel like I, I just there's a there's a gentler way of doing this. There are significantly better ways to have accomplished whatever the objective was, or I guess I should say outside of... It's, yeah, unless it's just to get some laughs making fat jokes. Yeah. Um, and there will be more of these. There will be more fat jokes, and it'll be up to us to kind of 
navigate that and see where they land. And listen, I'm not going to say people weren't making more fat jokes in 1978 than they are now. Of course they were. Of course they were. But still. So then Teresa comes out and sings her one hit song. It's a song called Music, Music, Music. Not to be confused with Baby, Baby, Baby. And definitely not to be confused with Tony, Tony, Tony. Did you know that it never rains in Southern California? I was stuck out there for a while. I know that firsthand. The entire time this bit was going on, I kept expecting her to turn into Warwick Davis, specifically because I was traumatized by the Leprechaun movies as a small child. Something about the perspective of Animal and Floyd looking at her being like that small in the shiny green outfit. I was waiting for it to turn into a horror thing. It reminded me a little bit of um, that old black magic bit from Sam and Friends, mm-hmm. right? Where Sam and Kermit are dancing in the television and um, I think it's Harry the Hipster and ah, I forget who else are, are watching from the outside. So it reminded me of that a little bit, just the structure of like, because the idea of this is that this is a jukebox that they're playing when it comes to life with her in it. Mm-hmm. Said it was a 1950 hit for her. It was written by a guy named Bernie Baum, which is only a syllable away from being one of my favorite Coen Brothers characters. Um, and a guy named Stephen Weiss wrote it as well. <sighs> Do you ever hear this song? No, but I think... So one of the things we've been seeing with a lot of the stars that have been featured on The Muppet Show is they're people that are going to exist outside of my purview. And so things that would have been hits for them aren't necessarily going to register. Even with acts you've never heard of, there are songs that like you're like oh that song mm-hmm. right that transcend even the the artist how many people know that the trogs are the ones that sang wild thing the version that they know right like you don't mm-hmm. need to know that this song is just so generic poppy it's fine to me i was watching this going like she's like a dime store connie stevens which is crazy because I didn't think Connie Stevens was the best guest either. But like there's something about her that's like trying to be teeny bopper and trying to be, I don't know, I don't get, listen, I'm going to be fair here. I didn't like the episode, so I'm probably taking it out a little bit on Teresa Brewer. I'm sure she was completely fine. Yeah, I, I think the the context sort of shifts a lot of it. I don't think she was a bad guest. I just think that she wasn't, there are episodes that focus more on interacting with the guests and there are episodes that focus more on the Muppets themselves. And this is one of the latter category. I don't blame her for Cottonfields, but... It's still not a good look for her. Music, music, music. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, at the closing, Kermit comes out and uh, calls for a big hand for Teresa. And of course, uh, Big Blue Hand uh, comes in and hits Kermit from the beginning. If you forgot about the Big Blue Hand at the beginning, which I totally did, by the way, because I was so fuming. And then what I thought was the only real funny beat of it is Piggy comes out and says, you know what? If the pig exercises, we're all exercising and makes everyone start doing uh, like running, jogging in place and stuff. And I like, see, that's something I think that's, that's an ending of a, of a lighter, sweeter, funnier version of the story. Mm-hmm. Actually, what is even better, what's a, 
I'm gonna, yes, I'm rewriting Jerry Jewel. What's even better is if the other characters come out in support of her and say, if Piggy's exercising, we're all exercising. But that might be too saccharine for the Muppet Show. It would depend on who they had to do it. If Animal did it, no one would see it coming. Or Gonzo or someone, you know, that, that is used to being an outsider who's like, you know what? No, I'll do it with you. That's fine. That may be too sweet, but there's got to be there's got to be somewhere between too sweet and this. It sounds corny as shit, but my favorite hour of the week is Friday nights after dinner, sitting down with my kids and watching the two episodes that I'm then going to come to talk to you about. I'm so glad we did not have that moment tonight. Teaching young girls how to feel about their body and about their weight and about their appearances is something that is already hard to navigate. And I think it would have upset them a whole lot. I think they would have been very upset by it. And... It just felt unnecessary and it felt mean. And I will say, Disney, it should have a damn content warning. Next time, Pigs on Stage. So season two, we will be wrapping it up with episode 223, Mr. John Cleese. It's very exciting. Of course, founding member of Monty Python, a million other things. One of the great comedic talents the last however many years. And episode 224 with Cloris Leachman. Um, People will know Cloris Leachman, of course, from um, uh, like the Mary Tyler Moore show, Young Frankenstein. Well, Nick wouldn't know her from Young Frankenstein, but the rest of us do, don't we? The rest of us know her from Young Frankenstein. I know her from Malcolm in the Middle. (laughs) She was Uh, great in that. No, she was. Um, And the season finale, 224, is a great concept episode. Uh, I'm sorry that this episode has been a little more negative, but uh, we promise, you know, to just try to be truthful and stuff. And um, uh, we do love the hell out of this show. So it's just um, sometimes it disappoints you. I can say with all confidence that we will be in a better mood next week and we will have more glowing things to say next week. Um, So until then, I'm Chad. I'm Mick. And uh, take care of yourself. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, they did it again. Yeah, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs>